Go ahead and turn to Acts 27 once you have it. Typically, we are going verse by verse, line by line through the Bible, and we are continuing in our study through the book of Acts. And just to kind of talk or give you an application on what we're going to be talking about today, how many of you guys have ever had to make a big decision in your life? Don't need to answer. I know that you have had to do that. And how many, have you, how many of you have struggled in making those type of decisions in your life in, in wanting to know what to do or wanting to know what God would have you do in any certain circumstance? You guys struggle with that or you guys all God together? You just have that clear communication with God. So let me ask you this. How many of you have gone in a direction that seemed or felt right at the time only to find out in hindsight that it was the wrong direction or wrong decision and that you had actually misled yourself in that direction. Can anyone be humble and relate that you've made mistakes? <laughs> All right, I have, surely. I'll give you one. Um, so almost probably six, seven years ago, there was a time where our house miraculously sold in Astoria, and we thought we were being called into the mission field, and we were in a rental and, and through that time, like two and a half year period, the Lord clarified that we weren't supposed to be going in the mission field. We we're supposed to just plant roots here. And so we're like, all right, let's you know, look for somewhere to live. And we were trying to look at houses and, and nothing really was coming on the market that we could afford or that worked for us. And we're like, okay, well, let's start looking at land. Maybe we'll build. And there was a piece of land that was build a bowl. That's kind of the key thing around here that wasn't sitting in the middle of a marsh or something. And uh, we're like, okay, well, this looks good and this looks affordable. And um, my wife and I had kind of, she reminded me of this recently. We had agreed upon a price that we thought it was worth based off of comps and stuff. And we made an offer based off that. And typically our practice is we're going to agree on a price if they don't accept it, then we're just going to walk away. We'll just, this is what we prayed about. This is what we have peace about. So we did that for this and they came back and countered. And uh, my wife was of the opinion, yep, that's not the price we wanted. So we're going to walk away. And I was of the opinion, no, no, it's just a little bit more. We'll go ahead and go for it. And so we ended up buying this piece of land and starting the process of trying to find a builder. And we went with one of those um, builders from the valleys that kind of throw things up really quick and that turned into a nightmare really quick because as we were going through that process, they were adding money to it that they weren't telling us about. And I was like, wait a minute, I, I manage construction for a living. We have agreed upon bid price. That's what you build it for. Oh, no, no, no. We reserve the right to increase if we have extra costs and stuff. And I'm like, wait a minute, that's not how it works. Well, it does for us. I'm like, so if prices go down, you're going to give me a credit? Well, no, no. Okay, well... <laughs> That's why you, you just win some, you lose some. But anyways, we're like, we're not going forward with you if that's the way it works out. So and then we tried to find some other builders. And anyways, it would turn in this long process where it just, it was like battling uphill. Nothing was working out. For some reason or another, we were not able to build in this house. All that to say is, uh, through this time, the Lord clarified that uh, I was supposed to take over as lead pastor here. I'm in that position for a couple months. Somebody here is here on a Sunday um, from our church family, and they're like, the Lord told me that I'd need to sell my house to you guys, and they sold it to us, just what they need to get out of it. It was way below market value. There's no way we could have afforded it. Otherwise, it was a miraculous thing, but all that to say is God had something much better, and then even though it, I'd misread the previous situation based off of what looked good to me, um, the Lord still protected us in that we were able to sell that lot after the fact for everything we put into it, and we broke even, didn't lose anything. So all that to say is even in my mistake, God was good. But that was a situation where I was more or less, I was praying, I was seeking God, but I, I misread it based off of what I saw and made sense and didn't kind of stick with, you know, the confirmation that my wife and I had and chose to go forward anyways. And it ended up being a mistake. God had something better for us. And I'm bringing this up just because in trying to determine the will of the Lord for our lives, there's definitely things that we can allow to mislead us if we let them, that we should be aware of ahead of time. And then the text we're gonna be in today, we see a great example of those things. So we're gonna talk about those so that we can be aware of them and know these things ahead of time so we don't make the mistake of being misled or misleading ourselves out of what God wants for us. So just to give us a quick recap, we finished up Acts 26 last time. 
Paul just gets done finishing, uh, sharing his testimony, sharing the good news of Jesus Christ with King Agrippa, his sister Bernice, the Roman governor Festus, and a bunch of other prominent people in Caesarea. And even though King Agrippa admitted that he almost believed, sadly, he walks away with his sister and uh, the governor Festus, and they don't appear to place their faith in Jesus Christ. And so um, they do, however, agree that Paul was not guilty of doing anything wrong like the Jewish religious leaders were accusing him of. And so they wanna let him go, but they can't because he's appealed to go to Rome to plead his case to Caesar. And so that's where he's gonna go, as we're gonna see. So we're gonna pick it up in Acts 27. Let me pray one more time for a Lord's blessing on this word, and then we'll start going through it. Dear Heavenly Father, again, I just think of this word today and think of how we love your word because it gives us these practical examples to learn from. As Paul says, we should learn from these things, seeing other people's mistakes and learning not to make them in our own life. But this is also just such a practical text where every day we have decisions to make. And we've been given this this great benefit of having a relationship with you where we can ask the one that knows everything, that doesn't ever make mistakes, that only has good, good, a good plan for us, we can ask you and involve you in leading us into any decision we have to make in our life. Your word actually says that if we lack wisdom, we can ask you and you'll generously give it to us. So Lord, we'd be fools not to take you up on that. But even though I know that, I know that at the same time, I'm prone in my flesh to be led astray or to lead myself astray. And so Lord, may we just take your word in today And may it help us rely on you and not ourselves and not be misled by our flesh or the enemy when trying to figure out what your will is in our life. Amen. All right. So starting in verse one in Acts 27, it says, when it was decided that we should sail for Italy, they delivered Paul and some other prisoners to a centurion of the Augustan cohort named Julius. And embarking in a ship of Adramatitium, which was basically a, a city in what would be Turkey today in Asia Minor, coastal city. So they get on the ship that's from that city, which was about to sail to the ports along the coast of Asia. And we put to sea, accompanied by Aristocharis, a Macedonian from Thessalonica. The next day, we put in at Sidon, which was a city north of Caesarea along that same Mediterranean coast, kind of in modern-day Lebanon. So they're going north. And Julius treated Paul kindly and gave him leave to go to his friends and be cared for. So here Paul basically starts his all-expenses-paid trip to Rome, where God had told him he was going to basically go there and be a witness for him to the people there. So he's going there as a prisoner, though. And this Roman soldier or centurion named Julius is basically given charge of him to accompany him to make sure he gets there safely. And Paul's shown favor by Julius right from the beginning, according to verse three. He's basically allowed to take some people with him. One of those is Luke, the writer of this book, as is shown to us by, by Luke using the term we as he's there with him. And then also this guy named Aristocharis, who presumably is another believer, as verse two says, he gets to go too. And then also we see Julius have an awful lot of trust in Paul because according to verse three, when they come to port, he'd be allowed to go visit other Christians who could minister to him. He obviously wasn't afraid he was gonna take off. He could trust the guy. So it goes on to tell us in verse four, and putting out to sea from there, we sailed under the lee of Cyprus because the winds were against us. Now there's a lot of shipping terminology here, which some of you guys know because you work on boats. I had to look all this stuff up. But just to explain it, when it's saying sailing under the lee of Cyprus, basically they're facing some wind that's opposing their trip. And so Cyprus is an island in the middle of the Mediterranean. They're having to sail on the wind-sheltered side of it, the south side of it, to protect themselves from this wind. And it goes on to say, and when he had sailed across the open sea along the coast of uh, Cilicia and Pamphylia, we came to Myra in Lycia which again was another port city in modern day Turkey. So they're kind of, if you know what the Mediterranean, Israel's kind of way over on the east side. So they're kind of sailing up and along the bottom of the coast, which they're getting into Turkey now, or modern day Turkey. It was called Asia Minor back then. 
So they're sailing north and then west. And it says in verse six, there the centurion found a ship of Alexandria, that'd be Alexandria in Egypt, sailing for Italy and put us on board. So they switched ships, continuing to head towards Italy. And it says in verse seven, we sailed slowly for a number of days and arrived with difficulty off Sinaitis, which was another port city in Asia Minor. And as the wind did not allow us to go further, we sailed under the lee of Crete off uh, Salmone. So Salmone was a port city on the island of Crete, kind of on the south side of it. And they're, they're sailing underneath that island or on the south side to be protected from the wind again. Verse eight says, coasting along it with difficulty, we came to a place called Fair Havens, near which was the city of uh, Lycia, which again was a poor city on the south side of Crete. So they're going north and they're going west. They're struggling against the wind. It's not the easiest journey thus far. They're facing a lot of opposition. Uh, basically the way they wanna go, they're fighting the wind to get there. So they're kind of at the mercy, just battling it as they're going. Now, opposition sometimes is normal. We've talked about this. Basically, if you're, if you're doing what the Lord wants you to do, the enemy's not happy of, about that and can kind of just try to discourage you through opposition. But here's the other thing. On the flip side, and this can make it difficult in determining the will of the Lord sometimes, opposition can also be indicative that you aren't in the will of the Lord. Or in essence, you're facing difficulty because you're trying to do something that the Lord never asked you to do, or you're basically trying to do something in your own timing when God is, is wanting you to do it later, all right? You're trying to make something happen in your own timing, which is what this appears to be in the following verses. So it says in verse nine, since much time had passed and the voyage was now dangerous because even the fast was already over, the fast is speaking of the day of atonement, which would be in the first part of October, which would also coincide with when the, the stormy season would start in the Mediterranean, not a good time to start sailing places. So it says, even because even the fast was already over, Paul advised them saying, sirs, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the cargo in the ship, but also of our lives. So Paul, he had a lot of experience sailing because as we've seen up to this point, he went on several mission trips where he'd go by boat to different places, okay? And according to 2 Corinthians eleven twenty five, he had some experience with storms because he'd been shipwrecked in those previous trips three times, even being stuck out in the open ocean for a full day and night. That's what it tells us. So he makes an observation based off his experience here, the time of year, the conditions they're facing, and he voices his concern. Hey guys, it's gonna be dangerous if we keep trying to sail now. And it appears he even gets a word from the Lord or specific warning, because he tells them, I, actually, the Lord told me that this isn't gonna end well for us. We're gonna lose cargo. People are gonna be hurt if we keep going, all right? So it says in verse 11, but the centurion paid more attention to the pilot or the captain and to the owner of the ship than to what Paul said. And because the harbor was not suitable to spend the winter in, the majority decided to put out to sea from there on the chance that somehow they could reach Phoenix, a harbor of Crete facing both southwest and northwest and spend the winter there. So the centurion hears Paul's advice and then he hears from the captain and the owner of the ship along with the rest of the crew who said that, hey, this harbor is not really the best place or the easiest place for us to stay for the storm season. It's, it's not really sheltered as well as it could be. It also, historically, this town that they were in was a lot smaller compared to the bigger port city of Phoenix. So typically, Phoenix was a place that more people would be in. It was a bigger city. It would have more things to do. So the centurion decides to listen to the captain and owner of the ship because the majority of the crew agreed with them, according to verse 12. And they continue on west in their journey along the south side of Crete, heading for Phoenix, which was about 40 miles away, all right? So it says in verse 13, now when the south wind blew gently, supposing that they had obtained their purpose, they weighed anchor or pulled up the anchor and sailed along Crete close to the shore. But soon a tempestuous, we don't use that word too much, it just means violent, horrible, a tempestuous wind called the Northeaster speaking of where the wind was coming from, struck down from the land. And when the ship was caught and could not face the wind, 
we gave way to it and were driven along. Running under the lee of a small island called Kata. Now, Kata was south of Crete, so now they're blown off course. They're wanting to go northwest, but they're being blown like southwest. Um, it says, we managed with difficulty to secure the ship's boat. This would be the skiff of the lifeboat. Usually they'd tow it behind the ship, but if they had a storm, they'd pull it up to keep it safe. It says in verse 17, after hoisting it up, they used supports to undergird the ship. Anyone knows what undergirding a ship is? So basically, you know, Dave, basically it's like where you throw cables or ropes or chains underneath it because in a rough sea, it could actually split the hull of like a wood ship. So they're trying to support it because the seas are so rough. Then fearing that they would run aground on the Sirtis, the Sirtis was a shallow sandbar that was well known for shipwrecks in the area. They lowered the gear, that would either be the sails or the anchors, and thus they were driven along. Since we were violently storm-tossed, they began the next day to jettison the cargo or basically throw the cargo overboard. And on the third day, they threw the ship's tackle or basically all the rigging that they would use to load and unload cargo. They threw it overboard with their own hands. And when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and no small tempest or storm lay on us, all hope of our being saved was at last abandoned. So first, I want you to note, things seem favorable, right? Oh, the wind's blowing in our favor. It's nice and gentle. This is a good sign. This is our time to go. So they take off, according to verse 13. But soon after, they're faced with this violent storm from the northeast, a storm that actually has a name because it's something they would regularly face, this northeaster. And they're helpless to navigate it. Basically, they're just left at the mercy of the wind, wherever it takes them. And as it drives them southwest, they become fearful of running aground on what was called the Sirtis Sands. It was a shallow sandbar off the coast of North Africa that was well known for like a lot of shipwrecks. So they start throwing off the ship's equipment and the cargo and attempt to lighten it so it would be more navigable, but to no avail is basically, it says for several days, they can't see the sky. And so back then they would need the sun or the stars or the moon to navigate. So they can't even navigate because they don't have anything to navigate with. And so they eventually, according to verse 20, just lose all hope that they're going to live. And I want to pause here and spend the rest of our time taking a closer look at this whole ordeal, because if we go back to Paul's warning in verse 10, this whole trial could have been avoided had the people listened to him, or maybe even better said, listened to the Lord, because instead of listening to Paul, who appeared to be speaking the very word of God to them, they chose to listen to their own wisdom. And here I'm going to tell you something, all right? Listening to mankind's wisdom over God's wisdom, when it contradicts it, when it contradicts what God says, is 100% time going to get us into trouble, okay? Just like we see here with these people. And in this example, we're giving four mistakes that we can make when we're trying to determine what to do in life or what is the God's will for us in life. And we're gonna go through those four mistakes, all right? The first being... We should never let our circumstances alone dictate our choices, okay? Never let your circumstances alone dictate your choices. Proverbs 16, 25 says this, there is a way that seems right to man, but its end is the way to death. Anyone experience that in your life? Before I was saved, I can tell you every decision I was making was leading me to death. Everything that was contrary to what God says in his word that I knew no better, that's where it was leading to destruction in my life. And because we still have our flesh, we are susceptible to making bad choices, okay? Now, I want you to note that verse 13 tells us that at first the conditions seem favorable for them to travel, right? The wind was gently blowing in the direction they wanted to head in, so they said, this must be a sign, we're right on the right track, But clearly that wasn't the case as they experienced shortly thereafter. So just because there is no resistance in a direction that we're feeling led to go, what we see there is that does not automatically mean that the Lord has opened that door for us. Another good example of this is with the life of Jonah, which some of you guys know in Jonah 1 verses 1 through 4. Let me read it for you. 
says, the Lord gave this message to Jonah, the son of Amittai. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it because I have seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction to get away from the Lord. He went down to the port of Joppa where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish, which was in complete opposite direction of Nineveh. He bought a ticket, went on board, hoping to escape from the Lord by sailing to Tarshish. But the Lord hurled a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to break the ship apart. Now, the rest of the story is he basically gets thrown overboard and a whale swallows him. And he's in the belly of that whale for three days, three nights, feeling sorry for himself, eventually gets to a place of repentance, understanding he made a mistake going in the opposite direction of the Lord. And as soon as he repents, that whale spits him out right back on land in Nineveh. That whole time he was feeling sorry for himself, God was just bringing him back to where he knew he'd be best off, all right? But what we see in there is that God gave Jonah a clear direction to head in, and he went in the complete opposite direction because he didn't want to do what the Lord told him. And there was a ship waiting there to take him in that opposite direction that clearly wasn't from the Lord as it didn't line up with God's word to Jonah. Yet he went on it anyways and unnecessarily brought a bunch of hardship into his life. Any direction you feel you're being led to go in in life will never contradict God and his word. And here's the thing you also got to remember that the enemy would absolutely love you to go in the opposite direction of God's will, which is only gonna be good, pleasing, and perfect. And he is very capable of making that direction look appealing so that you go in it. Isn't that what he did with Eve in the garden at the very beginning when she sinned, right? Clearly God said, don't, you can eat whatever you want, just not from this one tree. And he's like, oh, did he really say that? He just knows you'll be like him. Look at it, look at how good it looks. That's what Satan does, all right? And you might say, so what am I supposed to do to make sure a direction that seems right is from the Lord? You ask him. That's what prayer is. That's the type of relationship Jesus has given us with God. You ask the one who knows for sure, all right? And you might say, well, what? I've done that and I still don't have clear direction. Well, if you don't have a specific direction from the Lord for something you're feeling led to do, guess what you do? You wait, you wait, and this is the hard part, but you wait for God to confirm it or establish it or show it to you clearly in some way or another because circumstances can easily be misread and moving forward just because the circumstances seem right in themselves can quickly turn to disaster just as we see here with the, sh with the people on Paul's ship. And this leads to the second mistake that we can make in trying to determine the Lord's will in our lives and that is don't be impatient. Okay, don't be impatient. The crew of the ship was being impatient, although it was increasingly becoming apparent that this is a bad time of the year to be sailing. We're facing nothing but resistance. They just wanted to get to their destination. They're like, well, let's just push through it. Let's just keep going. And sometimes we can get in a frame of mind when we don't know what to do that we just need to hurry up and make a decision, all right? And I've learned through making that mistake personally several times in my life, that's a horrible reason to make a decision. Just because I feel like I don't know what to do, so I'm gonna go ahead and do something? No, that is not what we're supposed to do. And the thing is, who says you have to do anything? More times than not, we just put that pressure on ourselves because we don't wanna wait when a decision doesn't have to be made at that exact time in place, okay? There's a great example of this in 1 Samuel 13 with Saul. Let me turn to it and find that. You guys can turn there if you want. 1 Samuel 13, and this is in, starting in verse eight. This is King Saul, the, the first uh, king appointed by God at the request of the people um, for the nation of Israel. It says in chat, or, uh, verse 13, verse eight, says, this is Saul, he waited seven days, the time appointed by Samuel, uh, but Samuel did not come to Gilgal and the people were scattering from him. So he's waiting for Samuel to come and Samuel's not coming in the time he was supposed to come. So it says in verse nine, so Saul said, bring the burnt offering here to me and the peace offerings. And he offered the burnt offering. Okay, now 
the burnt offering was something that only the priests, who Samuel was, was supposed to offer before the Lord. They were sanctified. They were the special people. God had to worship them. And so nobody else was supposed to do this, okay? And so Saul, he gets impatient. He's like, Samuel's not here. I gotta go ahead and hurry up and make a decision. I'm just gonna do it myself. So in doing so, he disobeys God's word, clearly, all right? And it says in verse 10, as soon as he had finished offering the burnt offering, behold, Samuel came and Saul went out to meet him and greet him. And Samuel said, what have you done? And Saul said, when I saw that the people were scattering from me and that you did not come within the days appointed and that the Philistines had mustered at Michmash, I said, now the Philistines will come down against me at Gilgal and I have not sought the favor of the Lord. So Samuel gives him a chance to repent. He says, what have you done? But what he does is he just tries to justify his sin, that he had a reason. And based on that reason, based off what he's saying is impatience, okay? So it says, so he goes on to say, so I forced myself and offer the burnt offering. Let me tell you, sin is never something you have to force yourself to do. It's a choice we make, all right? We always have a choice not to do it. First Corinthians 13 tells us that. And Samuel said to Saul, you have done foolishly. You have not kept the command of the Lord your God with which he commanded you, for then the Lord would have established your kingdom over Israel forever. But now your kingdom shall not continue. The Lord has sought out a man after his own heart or wants to do what God wants to do. And the Lord has commanded him to be prince over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. So again, his impatience led to taking matters into his own hands, which led to lifelong consequences in his life, okay? And the thing with that is, 1 Peter 5, 6 through 7 tells us, so humble yourselves under the mighty power of God and at the right time, he will lift you up in honor Give all your worries and cares to God for, for he cares about you. It takes humility to go to God in the first place and ask him what to do in any given situation, okay? Because what we're showing is that I don't know as good as you, God. I need you to lead me in this. But it also takes even greater humility to wait for God to direct you before making a move. And that's exactly what it says there, right? But what it does tell us there is that there is such a thing as a right time with the Lord, which also means there's a wrong time any other time, right? Maybe you guys have heard it said before that God is never late, seldom early, but always on time, okay? And when we aren't sure what to do, here's the best thing you can do, do nothing, all right? When you don't have a direction to go in, stay put. Don't move forward unless the Lord makes it clear to you you're supposed to. And that's most certainly easier to say than do when you're actually facing that. But here's the thing. It'll be well worth it if you do, all right? The Lord tells us in Isaiah 30, 18, so the Lord must wait for you to come to him so he can show you his love and compassion for the Lord is a faithful God. Blessed are those who wait for his help. If you're willing to wait for his help, all he wants to show you is love and compassion and faithfulness, all right? That's a promise. But we can, in a sense, complicate that promise by taking things into our own hands, all right? We don't wanna react just our, our circumstances alone without the Lord telling us what to do. We don't wanna be impatient. Third thing, we don't wanna take a vote. <laughs> the Roman centurion heard what God was speaking through Paul, then listened to what the captain and owner and crew said, and he went with the major majority, according to verse 12. Let me remind you, family, the kingdom of God is not a democracy like our country, okay? All right? It is a dictatorship led by somebody that knows everything, never is wrong, has never, ever made a mistake, and will never, ever make a mistake. And as followers of Jesus, that is who we answer to, him in him alone, all right? And as such, we should never find ourselves looking for answers or direction in what the majority of other people think without first and foremost making sure it is what God actually says he wants us to do. Otherwise, we will find ourselves in the same situations as this crew. Let me give you an example with David where he uses this properly in 1 Samuel 23. 1 Samuel 23 Samuel, who was the king of Israel after Saul, he was also a soldier in Saul's army before he became king. And it says here, now they told David, starting in verse one, 1 Samuel 23, behold, the Philistines are fighting against Keilah 
and are robbing the threshing floors. Therefore, David inquired of the Lord. So his flesh would tell him, or his perception of the situation is, I should go protect God's people. I should protect the Israelites. But he doesn't do that without asking God, right? That's smart. He's like, should I do this, Lord? Should I go protect your people? And uh, the Lord said to David, go and attack the Philistines and save Keilah. But David's men said to him, behold, we are afraid here in Judah. How much more then if we go to Keilah against the armies of the Philistines? So he asked God, God tells him clearly, yep, go and fight him. But when he tells his people, the rest of his soldiers, they didn't want to go. They were afraid. So the majority didn't want him to do what God told him to do. But check out his response. This is how he responds. And the Lord, uh, then David inquired of the Lord again. And the Lord answered him, arise, go down to Keilah, for I will give the Philistines into your hand. And David and his men went to Keilah and fought with the Philistines and brought back their livestock and struck them with a great blow. So David saved the inhabitants of Keilah. So instead of listening to majority, what does he do? He asks God again. Confirmation, which again shows us you can ask God twice, three, four times. If you're not really sure, if you want to be sure, he's not going to get mad at you. He understands. Just like when our kids constantly ask us things, we don't want to get mad. They're just wanting to be clear. They're wanting to understand. It's the same thing with God. We can do that. And so in doing that, he also showed that he wasn't so he wasn't so mindful or it wasn't the greater importance for him to listen to man versus God. Ultimately, I'm going to do what you do, God, even if everyone else disagrees, because what you say matters. And that's what he did. And he got rewarded for it. God blessed that battle. Amen? So again, we don't want to be those that listen to the majority. Now, it's okay to seek wisdom from a multitude of godly counselors, not worldly, godly counselors, as Proverbs eleven fourteen tells us to do. But again, we don't pull the trigger on any decision until the Lord gives you the green light to do so. Amen? All right. Now, fourth and last mistake we can make is, and Britain talked about this. That was really cool what you were talking about, Lord, or Britain, just in not wanting to, um, in a sense, make decisions based off safety. And this is the fourth thing. We don't want to make the mistake of seeking a life of comfort and ease. The crew of the ship saw where they were at, and in essence that, uh, I don't know if this is the easiest place to keep our ship. You know, it's not sheltered as well as it could be. You know, the other thing is, this is an awfully small town, you know, we can go to Phoenix. It's just a little while away. It's, it'll be easier to keep the ship there. It's a bigger town. You know what? Phoenix has got golf courses and a retirement living. The sun's always shining. Maybe we can take in some spring training. Who knows? Let's just go there, okay? And, and, and they basically let the thought of comfort and ease that appealed to them be the guiding factor in their decision to keep sailing, even though... That's what the Lord told them not to do through Paul, and it led them astray. And again, we see an example of Saul making the same mistake in 1 Samuel 15. Let me try to get there. 1 Samuel 15, starting in verse 1, it says, And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now, therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. Now, just on a side note, because if, especially if you're a, new, a newer believer, sometimes we can look at a statement like that and we can think like, oh, that's harsh. I thought God was loving. It's like, why, why would he do that? Why would he want everyone to be destroyed? Now, what you have to understand is we always have a limited perspective of anything that God says. We don't know the whole picture. We don't know the whole plan. He knew these people's whole lives. And what he had told the Israelites in other places was these people that need to be destroyed, they need to be destroyed because they're never gonna change. They're never gonna turn to me. They're gonna continue to worship these false gods. They're gonna do horrible atrocities. They're going to sin. It's gonna pollute their kids and it's gonna destroy themselves and it's gonna destroy everyone around them. So just get rid of them. 
They need to be dealt with. Otherwise, it's gonna end up harming you as well. Now, the, re- the way I've heard this explained to me before that helped me understand it a little more. If you had a pet, like a dog that got rabies, what do you do? There's only one thing you do. What do you do? You kill it. Why? It is. It's, there's no hope. There's no cure for it. And it's the unjust thing, the lack of compassionate or the not compassionate thing to let that animal live and increasingly get worse and suffer and in the process take the chance of it biting and harming other things and spreading that disease to other people, right? Now, only God knows what's gonna happen in a person's life or whatnot, but this is part of trusting him and knowing that he knows everything and whatever he says is best. And so he gave him clear direction. You need to get rid of everything here. Don't take any animals from them. Don't take nothing from them. So it goes on to say in verse seven, and Saul defeated the Amalekites from Havilah as far as Shur, which is east of Egypt. And he took Agag, the king of the Amalekites, alive and devoted to destruction all the people with the edge of the sword. But Saul and the people spared Agag in the best of the sheep and of the oxen and of the fattened calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, they devoted to destruction. So they let their flesh guide their decision here. Even though it was contrary to God's word, they're like, oh, these are good. This will make our lives better. We'll bring back all the best of the flock. We'll get lots of flock. We'll have all this abundance. And in doing so, they're disobeying God. They're letting their flesh dictate their decisions. It says in verse 10, the word of the Lord came to Samuel. I regret that I have made Saul king for he has turned back from following me and has not performed my commandments. And Samuel was angry and he cried to the Lord all night. And Samuel rose early to meet Saul in the morning. And it was told Samuel, Saul came to Carmel and behold, he set up a monument for himself and turned and passed on and went down to Gilgal. And Samuel said to Saul and Saul said to him, blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, what then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? And Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites for the people spared the best of the sheep and of the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, stop. I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, speak. And Samuel said, though you are little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? See, that's the key there. Saul wasn't content in his life. And his arrogance led him to think that he knew better than God. Even though God made him the king of all the Israelites, it wasn't enough for him. And it says, the Lord anointed you king over Israel and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, go devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, the fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I have obeyed the voice of the Lord. I have gone on the mission on which the Lord sent me. I have brought Agag, the king of Amalek, and I have devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took of the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice and to listen than the fat of rams. Now see, here's the thing. Sacrifice was needed in the first place because of disobedience in sin. If we didn't disobey, there wouldn't have been the need to sacrifice Jesus Christ. So what he's trying to tell Saul is, no, 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 obedience is better than sacrifice because there is no sacrifice needed if you're obedient. And he goes on to say, and this is a really powerful verse, For rebellion is as the sin of divination and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. Why is presuming to know what's best idolatry? Because in a sense, we're putting ourselves in God's place. If we presume to know better, like what to do in any situation without following God or disobeying him, we're presuming to be God in making that decision. That's why it's like idolatry. And he goes on to say, because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king. Sad story with Saul. He started out good, but he got full of himself and went in a completely opposite direction of God. Now we can do the same thing, thinking that, where am I gonna be most comfortable? What's gonna be easiest for me? What, what, what looks the best to my flesh? 
in letting that dictate our decisions when really the only thing we should be thinking of is what does God want me to do? And then need I remind us, as Britton said in the beginning, following Jesus does not equal living a life of comfort always. I'd say most often. He told us quite the contrary, right? I, t- I joke with people with this often, like when I ask somebody something, you should pray about doing this, and they're like, oh, I don't know if I'm really comfortable doing that, and I'm like, oh, because following Jesus is about your comfort, right? That's what the Bible teaches us, just a joke with them, but I mean, that's seriously something we have to learn. It's not always going to be about what we want to do or our comfort. Jesus actually tells us in John 12, 23 through 26, now the time has come for the Son of Man to enter into his glory or die on the cross. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat is planted in the soil and it dies, it remains alone. But its death will produce many new kernels, a plentiful harvest and new lives. Those who love their life in this world will lose it. And those who care nothing for their life in this world will keep it for eternity. Anyone who wants to serve me must follow me because my servants must be where I am and the Father will honor anyone who serves me. Following Jesus often is going to involve what doesn't make sense to you, what isn't what like is appealing to you or what isn't you, something that you wouldn't choose for yourself. And it's in faith, trusting that God knows better than you do what is gonna be good or fruitful for you and then getting to see him prove that to be true as in faith you follow where he's leading, whether it makes sense or not. I can tell you right now, when I got asked to be the senior pastor, it was not on my radar at all. I was content with what I was doing, just serving the Lord in different ministries he allowed me to while working a, a normal full-time job. I had been in minister or a Christian long enough to know exactly what was entailed with being a lead pastor, and that was, no, no, that's okay. I don't want any of that, Lord. I'll just be the guy in the background serving. That's way more easy for me. But all that to say is, at the end of the day, I wanted what God wanted more than anything else. That's the only thing that mattered to me. I've lived long enough for the Lord to know that that's all I want, just whatever the Lord wants for me. And he'll take care of everything else. And that will prove to be the better place. And here's the thing. There's nothing easy about being a lead pastor. It's probably the hardest thing I've ever done in my life or the Lord's asked me to do. But through it have become also not only the hardest seasons, but also the most fruitful lessons things that Jesus has revealed about himself to me that I couldn't learn any other way, things that he's freed me of, bondages and stuff that I couldn't have learned any other way and I would never take anything back because that's the goal, to be like Jesus. That's what we want. We want to know him and be like him, amen? And we get that way by doing what he wants us to do, which isn't always gonna be the easy thing or the comfortable thing, amen? Amen. So in closing, I'm gonna try to do this really quick. I know I'm running late, but it'd be, I'd be remiss if I didn't offer you some biblical keys to effective prayer so that you know how to correctly seek God when you're looking for direction. So I'm gonna give you four really quickly. The first one is we need to pray with confidence, all right? Pray with confidence. Jesus tells us in John 14, 13 through 14, you can ask for anything in my name and I will do it so that the son can bring glory to the father. Yet ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Now, That does not mean you get to treat God like a genie, okay? The point of that verse is not that you can ask for whatever you want, like in your flesh, what you think's best, and God's just gonna do it. No, it says when we pray in Jesus's name, or the idea is according to God's will, we can have complete confidence that God will hear and answer our prayers favorably. You know how to know God's will for your life? You know his word. If you know his word, the better you know his word, the better you'll know him, the better you'll know his will for your life, and you will know how to pray, okay? And when you pray, you will have great confidence when you know that you're asking for things according to God's heart and his will for you, all right? You will have great great faith in your prayers. As Hebrews 11, 6 says, and without faith, it is impossible to please him for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. Okay, that's the first thing, pray with confidence. Second thing, repentance. Psalm 66, 18 says, if I had not confessed the sin in my heart, the Lord would not have listened. Sin interferes with our fellowship with God. So if we have sin we are aware of, we need to confess it to him, not for his benefit, because you're not enlightening him with anything he doesn't know. He died for you knowing you do that. 
He loves you, all right? You're doing it for yourself because what you're doing is you're, you're taking that sin that you think's in the darkness when it really isn't and you're bringing it out into the light. And once you bring it out into the light and expose it, God can help you with it because you're basically giving it to him to do that, all right? And then once you do that, your fellowship with him is gonna be where it's supposed to be and you can talk to him open and honestly and know that he's gonna hear your prayers and answer them. Amen, all right? So first thing, we're gonna pray with confidence. We're gonna pray with repentance or have a repentant heart if there's sin in our life. Um, third thing, surrender. First John 5, 14 through 15 says, and we are confident that he hears us whenever we ask for anything that pleases him. And since we know he hears us when we make our request, we can also know that he will give us what we ask for. When we surrender our will to the Lord and pray for his will in our lives. And that might mean that you're specifically asking for something, but it's with a, not an attitude of arrogance of like, God, it needs to be this way. It's with a, Lord, this seems right, but what, what is your will? That's what I'm trying to get at. If I'm wrong, you know, close this door or do something else, I want what you want for my life. So when we pray with that submitted heart, there is a great confidence we can have that he will hear us and give us what we ask for. But when we aren't submitted to his will and pray with that wrong motive of wanting only what we think will be best for us based off our limited understanding or perception of things, there's gonna be a lack of confidence in what you're asking for and how that's usually gonna look in your life is fear, anxiety, and worry. Because as James tells us in James 4.3, and even when you ask, you don't get it because your motives are all wrong and you want only what will give you pleasure or basically what looks easiest, what looks more comfortable, which isn't always the best thing for us. And we have to understand that if God doesn't wanna give us something, it's because it's bad for you. Just as I don't give my kids everything they ask for, because I have learned through life, some things are not beneficial to them, so I'm not gonna harm them. But God's perfect in that. He knows exactly what's good for you and what's not. And the fact that we know that Romans 12, 2 tells us that God's will for you is only good, pleasing, and perfect should give you absolute confidence that whatever he has for you is gonna be the best thing for you because he can't help but be faithful to honor that promise, amen? Okay, last thing, patience. And I really touched on this. When talking about the mistake we can make in seeking the will of the Lord in our lives and being impatient, we must be willing to persevere and wait on God to answer us in his perfect timing instead of trying to take matters into our own hands. Why? Because maybe you've heard this before. God is in the waiting. Or God works in the waiting. One of two ways usually. One, and I've seen this happen several times, what you start out praying for is not what you end praying for because God, as you're seeking him, gets your heart in line with what he gives, wants for you, all right? I think Hannah and Samuel, if you guys are familiar with that story in the Bible, I'm not gonna turn to it because we don't have time, but it's a great example of that because here she is, she's, she's barren, she wants a child and she's praying and she's really distraught over this and she comes to this point where she's like, God, if you give me a child, I will give him to you. I will dedicate him to you. And as soon as she's in line with what God wanted for that child, guess what? He gives it to her. Then he blesses her with a bunch of other kids. But all I'd say is that child becomes Samuel, who's a great priest for the Lord. But that's how it works. While we're praying, God is lining us up with his will if we're wrong. Second thing is his timing often has an effect on when he answers in the situation when we were trying to buy land and look for a house, it was over two and a half years later after seeking God persistently and even making a mistake that God gave us something much better that we could never have done in ourselves and that we didn't even know we needed the space in there until after the fact because we were gonna have family and a foster kid live with us. All these things God knew that we didn't know. But that's why we need to be patient because he's got a perfect plan, amen? All right. So as the worship team comes up here, if you find yourself struggling to know the will of the Lord today in your life, here's what you're not gonna do. You're not gonna look at just those circumstances and let that dictate your decision, all right? You're not gonna take a poll of what everyone else would do and make a decision off of that. You're not gonna just take automatically the most comfortable and easy route. Here's what you're gonna do. You're gonna go to God in prayer persistently and then you're gonna wait for him patiently, all right? Jesus tells us when he's teaching his disciples how to pray in Luke 11:5 through 13, then teaching them 
more about prayer, he used this story. Suppose you went to a friend's house at midnight wanting to borrow three loaves of bread. You say to him, a friend of mine has just arrived for a visit and I have nothing for him to eat. And suppose he calls out from his bedroom, don't bother me. And the door is locked for the night and my family and I are all in bed. I can't help you. But I tell you this, although he won't do it for friendship's sake, if you keep knocking long enough, he will get up and give you whatever you need because of your shameless persistence. Now, I like this. This is a contrasting story. What Jesus is trying to show him is that, man, if you go to somebody in the middle of the night, and back then, everyone would live in kind of like a single room house. They'd often bring their animals in at night. And so they'd be kind of sleeping together in kind of a loft. So there was no easy way to get up without causing total disruption and waking everyone up. And he's saying, if you annoyed somebody enough that they would get up to do that, how much more is God going to answer you in your prayers when he's not annoyed by that? He tells you to come to him. He tells you to draw near to him. He tells you to involve him in your decisions and, and look to him to give you wisdom when you lack it. He's like, of course he's gonna answer. And he goes on to say, and I, so I tell you, keep on asking and you will receive what you ask for. Keep on seeking and you will find. Keep on knocking and the door will be open to you. For everyone who asks receives, everyone who seeks finds, and to everyone who knocks, the door will be open. Your father, you fathers, if your children ask for a fish, do you give them a snake instead? Or if they ask for an egg, do you give them a scorpion? Of course not. So if you sinful people know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your heavenly father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So he kind of makes this transition where he's talking about how like, man, of course God is gonna answer your prayers in a good way because he's your perfect father in heaven. But he kind of throws something in there where it's kind of surprising. Like, what is he talking about giving the Holy Spirit? Well, here's the thing. The Holy Spirit's the best gift God could give you in, request, in, in response to any of your prayers because it's the Holy Spirit that leads you into God's good, pleasing, and perfect will. And then empowers you to live in it. So when you pray with that submitted heart and you wait on God, when you pray persistently and you wait patiently, God will give you his spirit to lead you in to that direction you're looking for. So all there's left to do is pray now. We're gonna have our prayer team around the room. You guys can pray right where you're at, but if you find yourself in that position where you're seeking direction, and surely if it's not today, it might be tomorrow, it might be the next day, my exhortation to you is ask your heavenly father to direct you, to guide you, and wait upon him to do that, that thing he's promised to do, lead you into his good, pleasing, perfect will. Amen? You have a bunch of brothers and sisters that are gonna be around the room. You could ask right now. Pray with them. Don't bear whatever burden you have on your own. It always surprises me. We don't have lines of people asking for prayer. You can do that. You can do that right with God if you really feel more comfortable right where you're at. Just talk to him. But don't leave here and miss out on this opportunity to involve God in your life and you keep praying until you get that answer. Amen? For the relationship we have with you. So thankful for the access that Jesus has won us at the cross where we can come boldly before you, not having to fear or not having to cower, not having to wonder if we're wasting your time. We've been given this privileged relationship where you're our father, a child father relationship and I know that I want my kids to come to me with whatever questions whatever needs they have and that's the way you want us to come to you Lord and forgive me Lord when I don't do that I can be just like Saul where I just see something and, and it looks like the better decision and even if it's contrary to your word and just kind of go that way and make that mistake. I'm so thankful that, that, that those times I do that, that sin's been paid for by the cross. But Lord, I don't wanna make those mistakes. I've made so many bad choices in my life based off my perception of things or listening to other people or being impatient. And Lord, I don't have to do that now. I have you to lead me into all the right decisions because you're the one that only knows them. So Lord, I wanna take advantage of that. My brothers and sisters wanna take advantage of this. May we come to you and just trust you to lead us however that it is and then wait upon you to do that. In Jesus' name, amen.